from Relay FM. This is Downstream, a podcast about the present and future of streaming media. This is episode eight for January 11th, 2022. I'm still writing 2021 on my podcasts. I'm Jason Snell. I'm joined as always by Julia Alexander, the senior strategy analyst over at Parrot Analytics. Julia, happy new year. Happy New Year, friend. Happy. We finally got we here. We made it. We did We did it, everybody. The sun <laughs> passed through that part in space where we say it's a new year. Anyway, we're all still here, and that's good. Um, I've got some follow-up for us. Love it. Which is fun. Little, little tidbits before we dive into some of our bigger topics this time. Um, I wanted to do a Spider-Man box office check-in. Now, you and I are both Marvel... Mm-hmm. Uh, marks marvel zombies whatever you want to call it uh, uh i know there's a writer i like uh craig cacatera who refers to himself as the world's greatest marvel mark and i'm like i don't know there's lots of us who are suckers for for marvel stuff but this one took me by surprise because marvel did shang chi and eternals and they did fine i mean they showed that that if you if you're marvel you can induce people to come out to theaters even when you know there's covid and people are reluctant um but the Spider-Man No Way Home box office is not what I expected. The last check that I made, it's up to $1.53 billion. And keep in mind, it isn't in China. That market yeah. is not approved for the Spider-Man movie. So what you know, what what do you think this means? What does this mean for theatrical? We've been talking about it all along. There's this question with COVID and streaming and all that. Like, what is the what what is the state of theatrical? And I know Omicron has scrambled everything again, but it's it's hard not to look at the box office number for Spider Man and think that it it's got to mean something because I mean, if nothing else, it's proof that you can get people to go see a movie. Yeah, it's funny. I feel like this is a conversation I'm having with everyone in my life on like various (laughs) spectrums. Like one is my mother who's like, I would like to go watch a non-Marvel movie. Are there those in theaters? Mm, And it's like, "Mm, not really. Um, I I think what it speaks to me, first of all, to add a little bit more fun numbers to Jason's 1.53 billion, um, this makes Sony's first ever and only ever entry in the top 10 highest grossing films of all time uh with this movie marvel uh as a whole it under disney because disney co-produced sony uh so excuse me co-produced spider-man no way home which is from sony mm-hmm. um has 65 percent of the top 10 films of all time at the box office um and of all the movies in the top 10 box office films only two are based on totally original ip both were directed by James Cameron and their Titanic and Avatar. Um, so I think that that's just fun things to think about. What we look at Spider-Man and what I've taken away when I've, I've been doing a lot of research into it is the question with theatricality, it has to answer two things, right? Do I have to see this now and do I have to see this in theaters? And I think what Spider-Man does exceptionally well, like not only is it the final installment in a very popular trilogy not only was it the Marvel movie that really everyone was super excited for, like if we look at Black Widow and we look at Shang-Chi and we look at the Eternals, one of those is kind of tied into what we know, but it's a prequel and people aren't necessarily super jazzed. Shang-Chi and Eternals did really well, to your point exactly, Marvel movies will bring in fans, um, but they weren't super hyped up. This isn't, you know, another Thor, it's not another Captain America. So look at Spider-Man, it really is the first major, major return to the box office for Marvel since Endgame, really. Endgame and, and Far From Home, the last Spider-Man movie. Right. So I think add all those things together, add in the fact that there is this huge fear of spoilers, add in the fact that that um, Spider-Man movies exist in perpetuum as a uh, fan event. People go to theaters, they scream, they laugh, they cheer together. Like, you can't replace that at home. So it's the type of movie that when we argue what is the future of theatricality, like, it is that it does not mean that spider-man is the future of theatricality although it will do well but can you generate a movie that people have to go see in theaters and they have to go see it now um and i think unless you can kind of answer that those two questions with a definitive yes it's much much harder to get your movie to be a success or to even get attention at the box office so this is where i've been thinking with like spider-man very successful did 1.53 billion which is more than avengers and avengers had china and china was very important to the avengers um and it will continue to do really really well but what does that say for any other type of movie that if you can't command even one fourth of that level of kind of enthusiasm and expectation for an experience at at a cinema 
gets much harder to convince people to go see House of Gucci, which I loved and I saw in theaters. But, you know. Yeah, it is this perfect storm. Uh, I, I hadn't thought about it this way, but you're absolutely right. Really, since Endgame, the here's another Marvel movie with that is that that is people you know and that is continuing the story. It's been the last two Spider-Man movies, essentially, to do that. And so, it, and, and you're right, fear of spoilers, wanting to know what happens to resolve this story, that people have seen those other movies, either in theaters or on video or both, and now they're ready, they're primed for it. Um, and it, it, it did come at a time right before the worst, well, worst, we'll see, uh, the real spike in the Omicron spread. So, mm-hmm. obviously, timing is a part of it, too. Yeah, timing is everything. But... Uh, but it is it is really remarkable. I also um, I keep thinking about the fact that Sony doesn't have a streaming service to flog. Right. Like yes. Yes. they they have been. In fact, I think they said now that it's going to come out on digital in February, but they were really quiet about when their digital release date was going to be because they saw the box office. Right. And they're like. They're in a position where if the box office is going well, they're just going to lay back and let it be in the box office. Whereas if they had a streaming service, they might not have simultaneously premiered it, but they might have been more aggressive like Disney and said, you know, 30 days or or maybe not Warner, right, with, with HBO saying it's going to be day and date, but, you know, 30 days out or something. And Sony was sort of like, we, we got time. We're going to let it percolate for a long time. And you do that with a hit. They didn't do that with Ghostbusters Afterlife, right? That one no. what, is still in theaters, but it's also now on digital because they, they want they want to strike while the iron is even sort of vaguely warm. And that movie didn't do well in theaters. But Spider-Man, they, they have no motivation, no external motivation to, uh, which is, what, you know, how movies used to be. <laughs> right? but- and, and even, even and that's an excellent, excellent point. I think one thing to think about when we look at Sony's idea of windowing, which is that exact question of do we do, you know, day and date, which Warner Media did? Do we do 45 days and then go to streaming like Disney Plus tends to do now? Um with Sony, they have this great moment where they can go, well, we're going to have Spider-Man in theaters as long as possible because the ARPU, which is the average revenue uh, mm-hmm. generated per user, um, is always going to be higher at theaters for the most part. It's just always going to come in higher. So the longer you have it in theaters, and the law, as long as it's making in- incre- incremental increases in revenue each week, it's a good bet to have. But then they get to go to digital and PVOD, which is um, premium video on demand, make some revenue there. And then they have this beautiful new deal with Netflix, where Netflix paid them a more than a billion dollars for the rights to what we call a pay one window. So this would have originally been an HBO or FX is now on Netflix for Sony films. So not only is Sony going to make a ton of money off of its theatrical run and then probably make a decent amount of money on PVOD and and digital and Blu-ray and DVD, which is that, you know, less ARPU than the first one, but still some. The third one, where they tend to make the least amount of average revenue per user, is actually going to be pretty substantial because they have this massive one billion plus deal with Netflix, where they're going, "This is already paid for. We know it's going to you. We, we, we like it's good on the box office front." So for Sony, it's this really great moment of if you consider themselves the idealistic kind of uh, or the ideal content arms dealer where they don't have to worry about streaming growth, they don't have to worry about proving two, three times their dividends to the to Wall Street. They get to just go, we have a great movie. People want it. We're going to make as much money as we can off of it and funnel that into our next Spider-Man or our next big picture, whatever we're going to do, whatever it might be. It might be Jumanji 3. (laughs) Oh, I uh, wanted to mention that the pay one window, it starts in 22. So Mm -hmm. No Way Home, I think, goes to stars Mm -hmm. because it's a 21. It's the last movie in that deal. Uh, but the, going forward, they're going to be on on Netflix, yes. and apparently Disney is now the post pay one partner for Sony. Yes. So Disney gets it. So basically, you're going to get the future Spider Man and Venom and whatever movies are going to go to Netflix, and then and then land on Disney Plus, which is you know I think I think Disney is very motivated to have the Spider Man movies ultimately reside in Disney Plus, even if they have to pay through the nose for it because. It's part of the brand promise, kind of. And I think Sony's like, if you pay us, sure, we'll do that. Well, and I think of just to add one last point to this, because I know it's our little, before we get into our main topics, but (laughs) 
Um, one thing that came out of Spider-Man, uh, and I feel like we can say the a, a minor spoiler at this point. It's been, you know, a month. Right. Uh, cover your ears. I'll, I'll cover your ears now, the spoiler alert. Um, but, you know, Daredevil makes an appearance in the movie. And since then, we've seen that Daredevil kind of reenter the top 10 on Netflix. We've seen demand for Daredevil increase again. Oh. And so what's great for Netflix in having this type of movie, and, I, and the same reason that Disney would love to have the Spider-Man movies, is they create this secondary right. um, moment where all these other old movies and TV shows suddenly become much more prolific and in demand and you have people seeking them out and consuming them. And so as long as you control that attention, then you're taking attention away from your competitors. And Sony gets to say, well, we don't have to worry about that aspect, but it does make our movies much more valuable right, to you. It goes beyond the individual property. It's like falling yes. through a Wikipedia rabbit hole, right? Where you're suddenly yes. like, oh, Doctor Strange is in this. Did I see the first Doctor Strange movie? Let's go watch that, right? And it's like the Doctor Strange movie has nothing to do with this movie, but certainly when this movie ends up on Disney Plus someday, they're going to have a whole like, why don't you watch the two by at that point two Doctor Strange movies and you know and the previous Spider Man movies and the other previous Spider Man movies, right? <laughs> and it just sort of goes like that. That's the that's the power of it. Well, this is I I feel like the topic of our age right now is is what happens with theatrical. Um, and and it's fascinating and it's unsettled and I, I think we'll we'll come back to it we'll come back to it but I, <laughs> I I'm going to use that as a bridge to talk about HBO Max which is another little bit of follow up I wanted to do um, because you did a, you you posted a tweet about how you know HBO Max is doing pretty well like there there's all this discoveries taking it over and Jason Kalar who is running it is probably not long for this world I mean for sorry he he's okay folks. He's going to be fine, but he's going to lose this job when they take over. <laughs> he's he's not going anywhere. Um, but uh, they, you know, Station Eleven is great. Euphoria just came back. Uh, Peacemaker, which is a spinoff of Suicide Squad, premieres this week. I want to say Hacks just won the Comedy Golden Globe. Um, there's a lot like content wise on HBO Max that it's hard not to look at that for all of the drama around launching it and the drama around taking those movies and putting them on and, and, and carving out box office revenue that they could have gotten. Um, they, if you just look at it as a service with content on it, they're doing pretty well. Yeah. And what's funny is that content was almost never a concern on the HBO side, right? It was like, well, HBO is HBO. Like they'll continue to be HBO. And, and I think, HBO has undergone three or four mergers and acquisitions with various companies, uh, and they've always come out on top. It's still HBO, just HBO. They're kind of this little insulated group who continues to do what they do. And the question was, you know, does HBO Max diminish the HBO brand? Does HBO Max offer anything that feels un-Netflix-like, un-Disney-like, but, mm. but, but it really appeals to those subscribers who might be looking for something else? And I think what we've seen happen with Station Eleven, with Peacemaker coming out, with um, the Sex and the City spinoff, right. with the secret sex life of college girls, um, all those shows have found their different audiences that are vastly different from the HBO audience. And so not only are you able to say, like, every Sunday we're going to have the HBO show everyone is talking about that is earning nominations, that is, like, the thing that HBO has always prided itself on, but you can actually say the supplementary entertainment on HBO Max is no longer supplementary. It's a yeah. primary form of entertainment for consumers. And so if you take that idea and you combine this on paper, you're effectively getting a $25, in my opinion a, mo a month worth at an entertainment subscription for $15 a month if you go ad free a little bit cheaper if you go um, ad supported um, and on top of that you get some of these movies which is go are going to go away, go away this year they will no longer have day and date release right. as far as we know they'll go back to theaters for 45 days and then to HBO Max um, or to wherever um, but I think what they've proven throughout the year with the use of movies and with the content that they did was they were able to create what we refer to as a four quadrant streaming service, which appeals to four different types of, of demographics and different content um, in a way that Disney Plus has not. Right. In a way that Paramount Plus and Peacock have yet to find the audience to prove so. And in a way that, quite frankly, most resembles Netflix, which is a compliment <laughs> to HBO Max as a business. It's that they have found something that people are willing to come into and then they get to boast the additional quality of HBO programming and HBO Max programming that I think is just slightly above um, Netflix when we look at it from a straight um, 
English speaking, kind of US specific portion of it. Because yeah. if we think of international, Netflix is still oh sure king. But like yeah. looking looking at their strategy, I, I yeah, you're totally right. This is, um, I think it's remarkable. I think the moment that that uh, solidified it for me a little bit, and I know like the Golden Globes weren't even on TV, and they have no credibility and all that. But I will just say. Hacks, I always thought, was a show that was essentially an HBO show, that they HBO comedy that could have been on on Sunday nights, and they didn't do it. They, it was an, a Max original, and it just won the Golden Globe for Best Comedy. And I think that is exactly to your point, which is you can't even think of it as supplementary material. They are programming stuff on HBO, and they're programming other stuff on HBO Max, and it's it's all I, I'm not going to say it's all good, but I'd say it's all credible there. It, 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 there isn't this feeling that there's the A team and the B team. It's just some of the stuff's on HBO and some of it's on Max. And if you want to see Hacks, which is maybe the best show on HBO, you know, <laughs> arguably uh, it's not on HBO. It's only on HBO Max. And that's where you have to go to see it. I think that's really interesting. I think another win that they have that doesn't get talked about as much but is is important is this idea of stickiness entertainment. So we refer to stickiness um, in a few ways. The one that it's most closely associated with is children's content because children's content tends to be sticky in the sense that kids rewatch things. And therefore, it's very sticky that they're always thinking of it. It's always there. Kids content is a pretty good investment if you can nail it. Um Case in point, see Disney's rise, uh, Nickelodeon as as kind of a, a backbone to Paramount Plus. But we can also th- think about this in terms of is there consistent weekly ongoing demand? And there's streaming services have gone about this in certain ways. So Fridays, for the most part, belong to Netflix. Netflix has a new movie. They have a new show. It's always out on a Friday. And people can kind of know they can go there and do that. But that only lasts the weekend, right? By Monday – that's pretty much gone away for the most part and people have to wait till Friday again and that's if they're interested in something at all. What HBO Max in partnership with HBO has done is they've created two days of stickiness. They've created Sunday's new HBO programming and Thursday's HBO Max programming. And there's something good on each of those days. So if you're looking around and you say Disney Plus owns Wednesday, there's new Star Wars, new Marvel shows out on Wednesdays and Netflix might have Fridays and that's debatable. Without fail, HBO and HBO Max have Sunday and Thursdays, and in part because they cannot go against their Sunday broadcasting schedule. They have to go. They have to be there. And so now they have two days. And when you are thinking about what becomes a necessity in your life, when when we look at bills, what is a necessary entertainment streaming service that not only you feel like the perceived value of quality of entertainment is high, but the perceived value in terms of usage is high. HBO and HBO Max all of a sudden becomes really hard to cancel compared to other ones. Yeah, for sure. It's uh, interesting. And again, this year, we should also mention they have had the movie or sorry, last year now. See, I'm still writing 21 on my (laughs) podcast. Um, And and that's not, you know, it's a mixed bag. But I think that, you know, Matrix 4 uh, box office wasn't great, but I've seen a lot of people talking about it. Uh, having watched it on streaming, Dune was kind of a zeitgeist hit, even though I'm sure um, it could have done better. But but the truth is, what was the pandemic circumstance in box office anyway? I think in the end, Jason Kalar's tenure at HBO Max and, and Warner Media, I think people are going to look back at that strategy and say, OK, they didn't roll it out well and they made a lot of the talent involved kind of grumpy. And yet I think it worked, right? Like, I think it worked in the sense that it made people... Uh, it put good content on HBO Max and made people take HBO Max seriously as a destination. Even if in the long run it's not tenable to to continue that strategy, I don't know. It kind of I think that taking the hit in the box office during an unsettled box office time and instead propping up your brand new streaming service, I think it's going to bear out as being the right decision. Yeah, I, there's this conversation about the. Without doubt, cannibalization effect, especially domestically, oh, mainly domestically, on the box office with the Warner Brothers movies, the 17 or 18 movies that they put out. I think it was 17. Um, and yes, there was a cannibalization, cannibalization effect. We can see it when we look at domestic revenue versus international revenue. The domestic tends to be a little bit lower than it would have normally. And in part, we can establish or we can predict that that's likely because it was available on HBO Max to subscribers. At the same time, and I said this heading into 2021, the vast majority of HBO of sorry Warner Brothers 2021 slate was not going to perform juggernauts at the box office. They, it was it just wasn't. They had Godzilla versus Kong, Dune, Suicide Squad, and potentially Matrix Four. Yeah, that would have been the go-to massive blockbusters. 
Godzilla vs. Kong did pretty well. Uh, there was definitely a cannibalization effect, but it also was one of the most watched and probably brought in the most new amount of subscribers to HBO Max. Huge for HBO Max to scale to the point that it needs to scale. Then by you, you, the lower you go, those new movies become some of the most watched on HBO Max, according to executives, like that it's, 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 you know, hitting their plan. And then you get to what I think is the most important thing is the Matrix 4, right? Matrix, huge, huge IP, multi, it's, it's a more than a bill, $1.5 billion the box office revenue for the last, for the first three. This movie not only underperforms at the box office, it becomes, it, it's got a B minus cinema score rating. It becomes a big joke online. I say as someone who loved it, yeah. um, but it becomes this extremely meta contextual thing about the Matrix and how franchises and IP in general is just like uh, the worst thing in society. And you can, you can, uh, I, I would say, um, maybe this is where you're going, but like as somebody who's sort of, if you're lukewarm on it, but you see that there's a conversation about it. It being on HBO Max is kind of amazing, right? Because you might never go out to see it. You might catch it later on video when the conversation is over. But the fact that it's on HBO Max means that if you want to be part, whether you want to be contrary and say, actually, it's a lot better than you're, than you're saying, or you want to pile on, you can just go watch it on HBO Max. I think that that's kind of magical. And that's that's exactly it. And so when your conversation then, when the when the question is, okay, we have this movie that does 33, I think at last count, $33 million domestically, not much better internationally. Like this was probably going to be a flop regardless, especially against the budget that it had. But all of a sudden, your competition goes from being Spider-Man <laughs> at the box office where everyone is going. And if we think if, you know, if we look at attendance at movie theaters over the past 20 years, it's without fail gone down every year. But the revenue for some of the best performers has gone up because people are going for one or two movies, you know, every few months that they really want to see. And those tend to be big blockbuster Marvel DC action movies. So Matrix, probably a hard sell regardless. Add in Omicron. Hard, hard sell, add in Spider-Man, impossible. At the same time, over the holidays, when people are more at home because of Omicron, because of the holidays, the only two streaming movies people talked about were Don't Look Up and Matrix uh, Resurrections. Yeah. All of a sudden, this movie becomes one of the five most watched movies on HBO Max, probably brings in some new subscribers or mm-hmm. leads to more engagement, which leads to less chance of, of churn. This is what the Kyler method is. It's let's use this year to boost up our HBO Max subscribers. Because if we get them in the door, we have the content to keep them. Right. The issue is getting them in the door. We don't have a Mandalorian to just be like, yes, that's 10 million subscribers easy that are going to come in first day. Instead, you build it out over the course of the year with new movies that probably would have performed maybe slightly better at the box office, but not by too much. And you get to boost up your streaming service, which is all Wall Street cares about. And so I think there's that moment of like, they did it their year. They're going to go back to theaters. They were always going to go back to theaters. And now it's like we have a substantial base to continue building our HBO Max platform on. And I'll just say the first 45 minutes of Matrix 4 are uh, are great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> They're legitimately hilarious. And if you listen to yes. this podcast, I think you will love the first 45 minutes of <laughs> Matrix 4 regardless because it's kind of about what we talk about, believe it or not. Yeah. Um, and then and I kind of wanted the whole movie to be that meta. But at the end, Me and, and then, you know, then there's a lot of explosions and gunfire. And it, it's exactly what you think it's going to be after that. And it's <laughs> it's fine. I, I would say the last part of it is, yeah, it's ho-hum and you got to let the you got to let the the universe building roll off your back a little bit unless you're super into that which i didn't like matrix 3 so and i didn't like the end of matrix 2 but you know what that first 45 minutes earned a lot of goodwill with me so you know if you got hbo max i think you can i think you got like a week left to watch it so just check end out the first matrix, 45 end of matrix 3 is pure anime and i think that's why I oh, sure i mean i know people like it. <laughs> it, it it lost matrix series lost me about halfway through matrix Two, because yes. I thought that it was br- the first half of that movie, which people also say is a bad movie. It's not. The first half of it is amazing, and then it kind of eats itself. Um, but uh, anyway, I, I could not recommend. There is some stuff. It's so meta and so weird, and I liked it a lot. The first 45 minutes. It, it is literally um, uh, the the movie commenting on why it exists. It's, it's great. <laughs> uh, okay, let's move on. I have one more really quick uh, follow-up item before we move on to main topics, because I know we've been doing this for a while, and we're still in the follow-up. We're just, it's been a month. We have so much to talk about. Uh, listener Nathan wrote in, and there's a thread, I'll link to it in our show notes, about why there aren't, something we talked about with, I think, a listener letter um, last time, about why there aren't more social viewing features, the whole like your friends watch are watching this. And it turns out 
it's there's a legal reason for it. And it's not like they couldn't do it, but I, I actually wonder if this is one of those things where it's just so complicated that they don't bother. And it, it, there's a long story, and you can read Nathan's thread about it, but the short version is some of us who are old enough remember that Robert Bork, who was nominated for the U.S. Supreme Court, one of the things that came out that led to his being rejected, and, and this was at a time when uh, Supreme Court nominees were basically always confirmed, regardless of party. Um, one of the things that came out was some of the movies on his movie rental list back at the in the days of videotape rentals at a, at a local video store. And it led to the creation of something called the Video Privacy Protection Act, which means in the U.S. there are actually some very, very strong, way stronger than you might think when we think of our modern online privacy acts, uh, limiting what can be shared of somebody's video browsing history. And I think it's I hadn't thought about this, but I think this is actually the answer for why there aren't more social viewing uh, features on streaming services Mm -hmm. is it requires like a huge amount of legal clearance and opting in. And it's one of those cases where, of course, there would be more social features if it weren't illegal or, or kind of illegal. So maybe one day this will get amended. But uh for now that that it's thank you to nathan for writing in it's a fun little uh history of uh how robert bork's uh nomination ended up basically leading to the uh the this privacy act uh he says that in 2012 netflix did lobby congress to amend uh the the act to allow consent to be given online but it can't be put in a privacy policy and it has to be reconfirmed every every two years so it's still it's hard to do this and that may be why a lot of companies just say forget it (laughs) we're not gonna bother (laughs) this is such an interesting thread thank you for sending it in thank you to listener nathan for that all right topic time uh pixar (laughs) i can't believe this story is happening pixar has had its third theatrical release moved to disney plus and out of theaters third in a row this is turning red um which has been uh moved to disney plus they cite the delayed box office recovery, particularly for family films and wanting the flexibility, they say, to prioritize delivering this to audiences around the world. I love Pixar movies. Um, I really, really do. I think that they, you know, Pixar is, I think Pixar is great. Should I be worried as a fan of Pixar that Disney seems to have decided that th- that Pixar releases are just easily put on Disney plus and not like premiere access, but literally just put on for free rather than going into the theater. Or is this, or is this just what, he, what Kareem Daniel, the distribution chairman at Disney says is just, you know, it's, it's really about the pandemic. It's, it's, it's not that we don't love Pixar, um, but they didn't do this with black widow. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, my, my assumption, so the, the one that's harder for me to reconcile, but the only way that I can make sense of it is that it was effectively an experiment, which is a terrible way to talk about a film that many people put their time into, but um, is that if we think of Black Widow getting the premiere access in day and date, which makes a lot of sense, big Marvel movie, part of a big franchise, sure. The question is, why didn't Luca, which is a Pixar movie, a great Pixar movie that came out last summer, get a premiere access treatment when Rye and the Last Dragon, which is an original IP, so both are very similar original IP, and that one came from Disney Animation Studios, did. Yeah. And the only thing I can think of, well, there's two points, but the main point is that they did it with Raya, and it might have been somewhat successful, but not enough as an original IP in the animation side to convince a lot of people to pay for a movie on premiere access. Uh, and, versus... then they, and then they took Encanto, which is a Disney animation studio, right. and they did a 30-day, I want to say, window uh, before it was on Disney Plus because they wanted it on Disney Plus by Christmas, for essentially. Christmas. Yeah, and so, and so exactly. And so the other thing, too, is that um, Pixar, based on different reports that I had read over, you know, between Business Insider and um, The Hollywood Reporter, all had great ones. Uh, the Pixar movies tend to bring in a bunch of subscribers, and it really gets people engaged with them, so they spend more time on the app. If you are a part of an executive team that is run with the idea that we have to prove Disney Plus is not stagnating. We have to prove that we're going to hit these, inc- these these crazy dividends that we're promising that we're going to hit within, you know, two, three years' time. All of a sudden, you get to take a bit of a break. No, well, that's not the right word for it, but you get to take a, a step back from theatrical because you have this 
understanding almost from the, from the street, which, you know, from Wall Street, which is Omicron's happening. And it's a bad time for family movies, especially if it's original IP, especially if it's not a, a part of a sequel to anything, and especially if it's a family movie. As, and as kids start to get more affected by Omicron, it becomes a lot harder for parents to say, well, let's go to a, a packed theater or whatever it might be. Right. Um, and so I think all those things kind of already are like, well, Pixar does really well on Disney+. Plus. Let's move it there. And then all of a sudden what we see over the last couple of weeks is Encanto did decently at the box office. You know, for its budget, it did not uh, make back domestically what it should have. It barely – it did not cross $100 million. But – the minute it hits Disney Plus, the demand for this movie absolutely skyrockets. Uh, we don't talk about Bruno, which is a song in the movie, becomes the most played song on YouTube. Mm. It's number five on the charts. Everyone is talking about it. So for Disney, they have this huge win in the sense that everyone is opening Disney Plus on non-Wednesdays to watch this movie and might be doing other stuff with it. So I think that performance, on top of all the other aforementioned points, makes looking at turning red and saying, we don't know where we're going to be in March. We're going to put this on Disney Plus and hopefully we can grow that there. Now, the last thing I'll say is I would put a lot of lot of money on the fact that Lightyear, which is their movie about Buzz Lightyear, will go to theaters. Like it's a Pixar movie and that's got the IP of Toy Story behind it. It is a chance right. for the Disney executives to say, look, of course we support Pixar. There just wasn't the right time for it while taking a bet on a much more guaranteed hit um, to an extent. And so I think what we're seeing right now is just the unfortunate timing of uh, Soul was the perfect movie for Disney Plus right kind of a year after it launched to bring people in and the pandemic was really bad, no hardly any vaccines. Then you've got Luca and they could have gone to theaters with it, but 2021 is still a bit of an iffy time for right. family movies. And and I, so think, they go, we're, I think yeah. the Jason Kalar doctrine actually kind of works there, which is like it's iffy and we're in the early days of our streaming service. And it will really work on streaming. So let's give it a like, I, I think that's the big question for me is, is this a long term strategy or is it really yeah. about pandemics and theaters and bringing kids into a movie theater, depending on what the what the covid situation is versus the long term? Because like they are also it's covid plus they're building their service. So it's like a perfect time to do this. I just after doing it three times, you, you do start to wonder, like, what is Disney's animation strategy? Hmm. And in the long run, are they committed to to doing animation in movie theaters? I think they I think they will be in the long run. Mm -hmm. But I also do wonder about that Encanto strategy. And if they're going to, you know, especially with kids who want to see it again, like if if they're going to close that, you know, narrow the window even more like with Encanto and say, we're going to do 30 days. And unless it's a hit, it's going to be on Disney Plus after that. Well, and I think if we look at I think there was four or five movies in 2021 that grossed uh, sorry, animated movies that grossed more than 50 million dollars domestically at the box office. Three were sequels, two were Disney animation. So the Disney and Pixar brand still goes a lot a long way in theaters yeah. still. What I will say is that I think um, it's going to become increasingly difficult or, or what will become increasingly clear is we're seeing experimentation play out, which is why all of these moves get a lot of press because it was like this was supposed to go to theatrical and now it's going to Disney Plus or whatever it might be. In a year's time, when they take the data and they take their learnings for, and they look at the uh, consumer demand for theatrical versus streaming, they'll be able to just make those decisions behind closed doors. It becomes less of a story because they're, we just won't know it. Instead, right. it'll be like, this Pixar movie is going to theaters. That one is going to be announced as Disney+. Plus. And the same thing will happen with their live action and with potential other things where they go, this makes more sense on Disney+. Plus. Right. We're just not even going to announce theatrical for it. I think that we'll see more of that. Yeah, we'll settle in as there will be – there's a whole conversation to be had, and we have a letter about this that we may get to, about um, streaming strategies of movies versus TV and the advantages and disadvantages of both because that is the question is like could could you i mean we've been talking about Pixar and and Disney animation um i want i think about that with things like Marvel and Star Wars too like is right now the model is very much like we're going to do a Marvel TV series and it's going to be six episodes or eight episodes we're going to do a Star Wars TV series it's book of boba fett it's going to be six or seven episodes i i wonder what the experimentation might be on saying what we're going to do is a mid-budget movie, Marvel yeah. movie or Star Wars movie and yeah. put it and premiere it and it won't be in theaters or it will be in theaters for a narrow window. But the the plan is really for it to live on streaming. 
whether they might try something like that because streaming, you know, there are movies on streaming and some of them do very well and people talk about them. Is it a thing to experiment with like what we would have used to call a TV movie or direct to video or something like that? That's something that's not quite like, I guess what I'm saying is it, why do they all have to be five episode TV series? Would you be willing to try a two hour movie and see how that does? And I wonder if they will try that. And again, I think, you know, last point for me on this um, is that even within our streaming moment, the data shows us that it is still nearly impossible to create a franchise out of streaming. If we kind of look at is something talked about for longer than five, six months where it hits this moment of just cultural zeitgeist. There's that on the television side on streaming without question. Right. But what we've really seen is that theatricality creates franchises and those theatrical franchises then power the franchise spin off the the franchise expansion on streaming. And so what we really need to question with Disney and Pixar or whoever is moving their stuff to Disney uh, Plus or to HBO Max or whatever it might be is – you're going to take the potential franchise hit because there's just not this attention. I think 2021, 2020 for sure, and potentially the first half of 2022 is still a good time to experiment with it because no one knows. But then if we want to get back to creating franchises that have a chance to, you know, go on and spur hundreds of millions of dollars in the future, um, you really have to commit to the theatrical window at least for 45 days. So really quickly, there was something that you wanted to talk about that I think fits in here as well when we're talking about theatrical and we're talking about movie releases on streaming. Um, One of the movie release successes that has been part of the zeitgeist, people have really been talking about it, is the Netflix release Don't Look Up, which you referred to to me as the perfect movie for Netflix. Why? Why is Don't Look Up the perfect movie for Netflix? (laughs) I mean, I think so. The the four Netflix part is italicized. I think Don't Look Up has worked for Netflix in a way that Netflix has always designed its movies to work for them. In the sense that when we think about what constitutes a movie that is going to get people to theaters, right? The the core perceived value has changed irrevocably. It's no longer just I'm going to be entertained for two and a half hours in a theater. It's I need to have an experience with a community. It's a whole different thing. I need to it's why if we look at the last 20 years, uh well really the more 10 years, last 10 years I should say, of um, genre analysis of films that have performed at a box office, we have seen huge decreases in drama comedies and rom-coms and huge increases in horror and action adventure, which would include um, action adventure. You could also include, you know, certain animation titles and superhero movies. So that's where the increases people go out and they have this experience and you can kind of picture it in your head. If you've ever gone to see a horror movie in theaters or you've seen, you know, like the new Fast and Furious movie, there's a there's a vibe to it. At the same time, what we've seen happen on streaming is that the amount of movies that have been uh, put in order-wise, uh, or sorry, the amount of movies that they've ordered, and we look at a genre analysis, have seen an increase in drama, comedy, and on Netflix, especially romantic comedies, because they're trying to supplement what people are going to not watch at theaters, but they still have a desire to watch that. But the core perception of that value has changed. And so for Netflix, when we look at something like Don't Look Up, it's a movie with an A-list cast, which everyone then questions, would this have worked in theaters? And my bet is that the reason Don't Look Up worked was that it hit on drama and absurdist comedy, which are two genres that perform exceptionally well in streaming compared to theatrical. Mm. But two, the 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 um, barrier of access to that movie is almost non-existent because everyone in the world has it. So much right. like The Matrix Resurrections, when you have everyone talking about how much they either love or hate Don't Look Up, it's either the greatest movie about climate change or the worst movie about climate change, all of a sudden, the requirement to watch this movie and contribute to the discussion and go on TikTok or Twitter, whatever it might be, is to open Netflix. Yeah. And that's what Netflix wants. All of a sudden, they're going, we've got this huge movie that is playing well, they think, prestigiously, and it's got the cast, and they can commit to saying, we're going to give Adam McKay and, and Leonardo DiCaprio whatever they want to do this movie. And it's being consumed, and it's being shared, and it's hitting levels of viral that are getting people to talk about it for two, three weeks, where normally they get something to talk about a movie for two, three days. And so I think everything that Scott Stuber 
uh, who's the chief of uh, Netflix film, and Ted Sarandos, who's the co-CEO, have wanted out of Netflix film, kind of came to a point with Don't Look Up. The one thing, uh, the one uh, caveat I always have is that I'm sure they would have loved if the movie had been universally loved. I'm sure that they would have loved if the movie was uh, universally acclaimed as opposed to having this discourse. But in the meantime, when they're trying to figure out stickiness, when their main goal is how do we create movies that land, that create cultural zeitgeist moments that are doing what our TV side is has done for years, Don't Look Up is kind of this quintessential moment for Netflix where there's both incredible positive learnings and incredible um, um, uh, teaching moments that they can, or learning moments that they can take away from that and try to do better the next time around. I think I'm going to slightly disagree with you about what Netflix wants out of this movie because Netflix has has done some movies that have been universally critically acclaimed right. and have won Oscars. And I don't know if those movies penetrate like Don't Look Up does because right. it's controversial and 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 because it's controversial doesn't even really say because there is a debate about the merits of it and i feel that too i watched it i have a diary on letterboxd i gave it two and a half stars and then i finally after thinking about it for a while i i upgraded it to three stars because my feeling is like i think it's actually good at telling one kind of story but they they think they're telling a different kind of story it's complicated but um but again i think that having a a movie like that that people are like not sure how they feel about it and some people think it's great and some people not i don't know i think that drives way more of us just to check it out and judge for ourselves whereas yes. if they say here is this amazing um guillermo del toro uh film in black and white that you're gonna is gonna win oscars or get nominated for oscars is like okay great but there are gonna be a lot of people who are like yeah you know it's just another another fancy movie as opposed to i want to talk about this <laughs> No, totally, totally agree with you. And I think they have those, right? Like they have the Irishman, they have the Alfonso Cuaron movies, like they have that they've they've established themselves to Hollywood as a place where they can bring auteurs and they'll give them money or or, uh, established filmmakers. And they can do stuff that's not, you know, people in spandex or CGI costs or CGI like moving around like that's they've they've reestablished for film. Uh, and for serious filmmakers, a place to make serious films that will be seen so they don't have to go and make superhero movies. I'm going to say, please don't yell at me, listeners. I love superhero movies. Yeah. I love regular they movies. They can't all be superhero movies. And, and also, and, yes, and, I've conflated I've conflated The Shape of Water, which was a theatrical release from Guillermo del Toro, with Roma, which was a Netflix release. It, it, sorry, those guys are buddies. Cuaron <laughs> and del Toro, they're buddies. But yeah, it was Roma that I was thinking of, which is like everybody loved that movie. And it was on the list. I'm not sure it did as well as as Don't Look Up, which is broader and has big stars and was debatable and like and uh, powerful. Exactly. And I think as Netflix, it's exact. Yes, 100%, Jason. Like that was exactly my point on Twitter, which was it is the type of stickiness that Netflix has not seen in a movie. And if they really want to create, like they have movies with Zack Snyder, who is arguably the king of making very beloved movies for years and years and years for his audience, for his fans. Um, Army of Thieves and those movies, Army of the Dead, are not sticking the way that Netflix may hope for them. The big, loud action movie stuff, too. It's like, yeah, I wonder if that's not that their instincts are going to the big, loud action movie. And that's not maybe the best hit audience for this. I don't know. I mean, there's lots of different audiences, right? There's some people who like they want the action movies on Netflix and they're going to go there. But but I don't know. There's there's some secret sauce. I agree. And don't look up where. Yeah. And and I I looked into comparison of Red Notice and Don't Look Up and Red Notice did very well for Netflix consumption wise. It's still heavily consumed and Don't Look Up is, is still being heavily consumed. But the difference is, is the drop off point for Red Notice in terms of are people do people care about this? Is there attention on it? compared to the drop-off point that's beginning for Don't Look Up is vastly different. Red Notice had huge spike in demand and consumption and people watched it, but then they kind of forgot about it, which is typical of, of Netflix. It's very typical of like, there's a thing, I watched it and I'd forget about it. Don't Look Up has the bit of a longer tailwind that we see with theatrical movies a little bit more. Um, and so I think for Netflix, that movie, again, in italics, did for Netflix what Netflix designed movies to do for Netflix. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, One more topic, and then we'll have time, hopefully, for a couple of letters. It's about, it's a great story about Yellowstone, which is a hit. 
And it's like the the story on Puck that I read about this is the triumph and tragedy of Yellowstone, which is, you know, it's a little over the top, but it is actually pretty funny. This is a show from the Paramount Network, which is a, 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 a formerly, what was it before? Um, uh, God, Sundance. Oh, Spike. 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 Was, mm. No, Sundance, I think. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know. But it, it's a, a very much a Viacom CBS product on linear. Um, it's an original starring Kevin Costner. It's a soap opera set out set in, in, in Yellowstone and around <laughs> uh, like it says on the label. It is a hit. But here's the thing. Viacom CBS sold the streaming rights, the post linear post airing streaming rights to Peacock which is owned by NBC Universal, of course. And so now it is a hit and people discovered it. And we've talked about this before, this idea that sometimes you're, you take your linear show and you put it on a streamer and people discover it on the streamer. And that happened with Yellowstone. People are like, oh my God, Yellowstone, they consumed all those seasons. And now they're like, why can't I get more Yellowstone? And the answer is because you have to wait six months because it's airing week by week on this cable channel that you may not have access to. And from Viacom CBS's perspective, it's like, yay, we've got a hit. Oh, it's on someone else's streaming service. It's just such a great crystallization of sort of where we are right now, where people, you know, deals made a year or two ago that there are now regrets about because uh, their strategy shifted or they didn't really expect that it was a hit. It was going to be a hit. And you end up in this really funny situation where everybody kind of wins because there's a show people like and Viacom CBS made it and NBC Universal streaming it. And yet everybody's also kind of dissatisfied because it's like on the wrong from the wrong company on the wrong service and you can't get it if you're a cord cutter because it's on this linear channel it's just what a story what a what an amazing story it's one of those rare moments and like yes like the the story written by matt bellany is like truly incredible um it's one of those rare moments where you get really frustrated as a cord cutter because you remember that cable tv or even cable but just access to tv exists you can't get no matter what you do like you kind of look into it and you're like is my only option for this to, to pirate it? Because I don't want to pirate it. Like, I, I don't want to go, one, through all that trouble, too. Uh, I feel like legally, I have to say, we condemn piracy. Yeah. But, uh, like, all of that trouble, it's like, I just, I will sign up for whatever service you want me to sign up for for a month. Like, I'll do it. I just, where can I go to get it? Um, and I think the the biggest winner in this, uh, I was looking into uh, demand at my at work, uh, I work at Paradise Analytics, I was looking into to demand for Yellowstone, mm-hmm. and it topped peacocks like offerings which is a great moment for jeff shell and his team where they're like oh we need something to bring people into peacock like if it's this great and then we can start building out our own library because eventually it will go back to paramount plus like eventually they'll get the rights back but in the moment it's like you've got all these 20 and 30 uh, 20 30 40 somethings who are trying to watch yellowstone who don't have cable tv who aren't going to find ways to get this who are like i'll watch the first three seasons on peacock and then wait for wherever the fourth one ends up um here's my pro tip by the way which is if you if you subscribe to an over the top service and a lot of them so or a uh you know a I forget what they're called but you know a a cable proxy but it's actually a, a an internet streamer so YouTube TV Fubo TV uh, Sling those services um, and you got to see make sure it's one that's got Paramount Network on it I have Fubo and it does have it and some of them have like introductory deals. <laughs> Um, because it's on a linear and there's an on-demand window while the show is in season, every episode of season four of Yellowstone is available on demand on Fubo. I can watch them. So (laughs) you you almost want to treat that over-the-top cable-style service. If you can find one that's got a nice like teaser rate for a month, pretend it's a streaming service and just watch... watch yellowstone on the paramount on demand and then cancel it that would be one way to do it it's silly that is that is what you have to do but it beats back in the day when you couldn't get it unless you had the cable company come to your house and install cable again as a cord cutter you can just turn it on turn it off it's also the most like quintessential viacom cbs play right now which is viacom cbs and nbc universal more than any of the other companies get trying to get into streaming um have yet to really say we're going to go all in on streaming. And so they have this moment where they're like, well, we have the top rated show on television and that's important because advertisers or, or whatever it might be. I don't even know if 
if that network has ads or not. I but uh, like I have no idea. But uh, but it's like at that moment where it's like, well, we have to prioritize it here. When it's like this could be your reason to bring in, you know, five, six, seven million different subscribers um, to, to Paramount Plus. Like this could be your option, and that's the, the whole thing. And if they had prioritized streaming three, four years ago. Which no one did at the time. I mean, it was really Netflix and to an extent maybe Disney, uh, who was just thinking of it. Um, it was like, okay, that would be the bet that you make. And now we're seeing the the repercussions of these companies who are like, we didn't prioritize streaming even a year ago, a year and a half ago, two years ago. And we're stuck in this position where maybe we get this rating sit over here and we can do something with advertising, but we're losing out on our Paramount Plus subscribers, which we consider the core of our business. Um, and I think what really is funny about Viacom CBS in this moment is they have three of the most talked about shows that are being watched. They have Yellowstone, um, and then on Showtime, they have Yellow Jackets and uh, No Relation and Dexter. And so what they have is this beautiful moment where I, I did this last night. I signed up for Showtime to watch Dexter and Yellow Jackets, and they were like, hey, you can get Paramount Plus basically for an extra dollar if you're going to get Showtime. Do you want to just sign up for both? And I was like, sure. Like, that makes sense. And it's like this moment that they're going to miss out on with so many people who, whether it's Yellow Jackets and Dexter or or looking for whatever they might be, they could have had this moment of being like, you can come and get Yellowstone. Also, you can bundle this and get Yellow Jackets and Dexter. It's rare that a company has this many high-profile series at once. Um, and they're going to miss the bucket on it in terms of generating new cons- new subscribers out of it. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, in the end, I think these companies are all going to get their act together. They are getting their acts together. But right now you've got this legacy of uh, old deals that are the regrets. Oh, the regrets. But it's too late. <laughs> the deals are in place. That's just how it has to be. You know, Disney would like to be able to make Spider-Man movies on its own, too, but it can't. <laughs> it just can't. So uh, this is where they are. Regrets. Is this where we cry for Disney? No, <laughs> no cries for Disney. No cries for Disney. Let's do some letters. I got a, a handful. We've been going for a while now, so I'm going to uh, just select a couple. Uh, this one's from Steve. Steve says, in the 2020s, does it still make shows to preferentially drop new episodes on Sundays? And he links to an IndieWire story about this. Does this only hold true if the show is on a service with a broadcast as well as a streaming component instead of just streaming? So basically, it's like, why Sunday? Uh, Why do we pick a day and why is it Sunday? Uh, My understanding is that it used to be Thursdays because ad-driven network TV, they wanted lots of movie ads to get people to go out and see a movie over the weekend. And that Sundays was traditionally a TV night because everybody was was back home from whatever they were doing and they were getting ready for work the next day. And that was a perfect captive moment to get people in their homes. Is that just sort of that legacy continues to this day? Is that about it? Yeah, my assumption would be that... Um certain businesses within Hollywood move at a glacial pace. And yeah. so Sundays and Thursdays and, and the days that have always been the days are kind of like there's you'll hear conversations of people being like, we're trying to recreate, you know, the NBC Thursday magic. And it's like from the 90s. Like, that's a yeah. weird thing to do in 2022. Sort of a, long, a long time ago. Well, you know, so taking taking people back the for our older listeners, which I, I guess I, I'm part of that now. I resemble <laughs> that remark. Um, Saturday used to be the highest rated TV sh- TV day. Believe mm-hmm. it or not, Saturday, a, a day abandoned by all the networks <laughs> at some point about 15 years ago where they, they stopped, literally stopped programming Saturdays because what was the point? NBC finally did the right thing and just said, why don't we show Saturday Night Live live on the West Coast on Saturday night? Because at 930 uh, or sorry, at 830 p.m. because there's nothing else on. The idea about Saturday was that when demographics became important for advertising, the people who are home on a Saturday night are old people who don't have any place to go. I do, though, think, I don't know. I mean, like, first off, you could just premiere it on Friday night at that point. And Friday night is also kind of a ghost town. But that was it just shows you that there are different strategies that lead to different results. Saturday night was a huge night because people the people who stayed home were looking for entertainment and they would watch a new thing that came out on Saturday night. Um, But demographics for advertising changed the game. And then Saturday night became a wasteland. I, you know, these things can change, but it does take time. And to your point, it, they move at a glacial pace and they're, they're clueless sometimes about trends. Um, But yeah, I think, I think literally the reason HBO has Sunday night is because, 
that of what I said before, which is the rationale there is that people are back from their weekend and they're a receptive audience in, for a for a service that doesn't need to rely on ads for movies as a huge moneymaker, whereas NBC made a lot of money on must-see TV selling ads for movies. <laughs> That's yeah. There's a really great chapter on this in um, the new HBO, Oral History of HBO book, uh, the name I'm forgetting, but um, it's great. There's a, And basically, to Jason's exact point, they were like, we don't have to worry about that advertising revenue, and also we want to be water cooler conversation. And their whole thing was, if you're going into work on Monday or school, like, you're going to talk about what you saw on Sunday. Is this Tinderbox, HBO's Tinderbox. ruthless pursuit of new frontiers? Yeah, great book. Right. It's a thousand pages, but it's an oral history and it goes all for sports fans. I know Jason and I are um, and obviously HBO fans. It's a really great history of kind of the business and the content uh, side of it. Nice. All right. This one is from Chris B. We have a lot of Chris listeners, it turns out, too, in addition to our other names. I forget who was it. Was it Johns or Stevens or something where we have like multiple names? I try, I'm trying to do uh, initials now so we can clear up whether they're the same or different. This is Chris B. who writes, Hey there, from listener Chris in Manhattan. Am I the only one who spent the majority of the Hawkeye finale wondering about the licensing arrangement that made NBC's 30 Rock the showpiece for a Disney show? I bet the answer has to do with boring New York real estate moguls. But what if this was epic streaming trolling? Love to your mothers, Chris in Manhattan. I had this thought, too, which is, isn't it funny that this Disney show's climax is at 30 Rock? Um, they Look, they wanted to use the ice skating rink and the Christmas tree, and that is like the heart of Manhattan Christmassy vibe. Uh, but they did go, It's they don't use the name, but it's strongly implied that the shootout at the beginning of that episode is in the Rainbow Room which yep. is up at the top, which I've been in a few times. And it's like fancy New York, like, ooh, the Rainbow Room. Like, this is where, like, radio uh, band leaders perform during the heights of RCA's uh, <laughs> radio industry life back in the whatever that would be. I, I'm, I'm going to get the wrong time frame for this, but like the 30s? I don't know. From high atop the Rainbow Room. Um I think that's probably it, right? Like Disney's big enough to say that 30 Rockefeller Center is a is a great place to have a I mean they do trash the place to be fair. <laughs> yeah, I think also um Disney uh would be much more concerned, I think, if um Rachel from Friends or someone had appeared in the episode and that was like a sure. whole thing that NBC got in versus, you know, an iconic building in new york where the show is set where right, liz, where Le- liz lemon Marvel's comes set. out and shakes her fist or something like that that would be weird it would be wrong yeah, I was trying- thank you for remembering 30 rock like i was it, i had a, a moment where i just could not remember nbc shows uh, <laughs> that's must not must not remember tv i guess is what we'll call that uh, but yeah it was it, it did make me laugh and then we saw the actual uh, there was a shot in something else we were watching maybe maybe a live sporting event or something where they showed the the tree and the and the ice skating rink and my wife and my son and I all had a hearty laugh. And my daughter, who did not watch Hawkeye with us because she was at college, was like, what? And we're like, it's Hawkeye. He, he was in the tree. <laughs> it, it, never mind. <laughs> it's, like, it's not worth it. But it was pretty fun. So I think fortunately, network synergy and, and corporate synergy has not ruined things like the uh, the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree and ice skating rink. That's it's fine. It's fine. But I did. I did chuckle at it, too. Chris B. I did. I did. <laughs> And uh, this final letter from Chris Yu, see? Another Two Chris's, Chris. but they're different. Uh, the latest episode, <laughs> and this is actually from a couple weeks ago, a recent episode of Star Trek Discovery suffered from major banding artifacts when the highly compressed video stream provided by Paramount Plus proved inadequate to render the fine gradations of black the producers chose to render. Uh, this is the subspace rift. They go into a black void, basically, in this episode. We've seen these issues before, notably in several episodes at the end of Game of Thrones. I despair. Chris Hughes says, I despair that streaming services will never spend enough on bandwidth to solve this problem. Do you think editors and directors will ever start mastering episodes to avoid these issues, knowing that they will be put through the video compressing compression ringer before their viewers ever see them? This is a great question, you know, and it's it has to do, I think, in part with the people who make the shows are paid to make it deliver it in the most attractive way possible um and they're also thinking about future like future these are going to be you know have more bandwidth and they're going to be hdr and they're going to be all of these things so they want it to be the best possible version they can possibly make rather than it being a downgraded version 
I do wonder if maybe some engineer in the process of putting it on a streaming service for the non HDR stream might want to have more of a workflow where they adjust the gamma of the show so that it's visible. I had this happen with a different show and the banding is a problem, but also some shows just are so darkly graded that I had to crank up. I I like literally could not see what was going on until I changed my TV settings and my TV was on like reference settings. It was HDR Dolby vision and I still had to make it brighter. So what do you, what do you think about this? Cause everybody had an opinion about this when that game of Thrones episode that was set entirely at night where people wore dark clothing at night uh, (laughs) and you couldn't see anything. um, And, and all of the MPEG artifacts all of the H two six four artifacts danced across the screen as you couldn't see anything. It's so so frustrating, and like <laughs> it's funny because it, there it's it's something that the engineers are aware of. I would put money on it. Oh, like sure. they're like, and it's just one of those things. They where know what codecs they're encoding the the right because somebody takes the master and encodes yes. it for streaming at a bunch of different levels because streaming is dynamic based on your bandwidth. Somebody knows what the codecs are. Somebody knows what their what their deals are. And and, and the question is, do they care? Do are they empowered? It's sort of like what we've talked about some other stuff on the technical side of these services where I'm sure they know, but for whatever reason, they can't do anything about it. <laughs> yeah, my assumption would be that there's just no bandwidth or support from higher ups who yeah. are highly or more focused on content and and not just presentation of content uh but it's it's deeply upsetting and i hope that it raises enough of a stink like what happened with game of thrones and sometimes happens with other streaming services that it gets kind of big on twitter and and then this is a terrible way to say it but like the quote-unquote right people tweet about it and all i mean by that is people who are followed by those executives um like they'll tweet it and then it becomes like an issue that someone drops a tweet into slack we've, we've all been doing this stuff at work someone drops a tweet in it becomes a known issue um, that I hope it becomes something that, that they want to address. But I think right now they're just so focused on trying to bring in content that people actually want to pay for that they're kind of like, yeah, we'll worry about if it's too black down the road. <laughs> if it's too yeah. dark. It's- yeah, I, I, I think, uh, yeah, I, I do think that all the streamers are going to get better at technology as they go and are going to realize that. But it may be like there are specific issues. I also think everybody's bandwidth will get better and the codecs will get better. And so it'll be less of an issue. And eventually we'll be in a wonderful 4K HDR world where every everybody will be able to see it. But I, I think it's hit or miss right now. And maybe, like, my bet is that whoever was behind the HBO stuff for Game of Thrones, there was a conversation about engineering four different streaming levels and what they were empowered to do. I also think that that's part of this too, which is what are they empowered to do? Because it's essentially, I mean, it's not like you're, you're grading the film or something, but you are modifying the image that was delivered to you by the creatives. Right. And so there's an argument to be made that the engineers should never touch it. The problem is they are touching it because they're feeding it through a codec and the result (laughs) is not being approved by anybody, right? I would assume. So somebody needs to work up a system where there's some agreement about what happens with your really dark episode that you just sent, which we're going to do this on HDR. But on non-HDR, I don't think Paramount Plus does HDR, by the way, which is part of the problem here. Um, On the non-HDR version, we got to lighten these scenes. Like eventually you want to have that kind of conversation, but so much now is literally it gets delivered. It gets run through the grinder. Uh, sorry, the video compression ringer, as Chris put it, and it just gets spat out and there's no, you know, right. So you're like, you don't want to interfere with the creative process, but the codec is already doing that. So maybe have a conversation about what you're seeing here. I, I think we'll get there, but I don't think we're there. I would also say, and this is a question for Jason, but also for listeners who, because Jason is extremely uh, smart with all tech things, and I imagine many of our listeners are as well. I have a television set. Um, This is how limited my knowledge of technology is. I think it's an LG. It's an LG or a Sony. Um, It increases the audio by itself. Like if there's noise outside, it will like increase the audio to offset it. And it's ruining all of my viewing experiences because I live in New York City. 
So there's always noise. Always outside. noise. <laughs> you should. Um, you yes. Well, we'll we we can take this offline too. But you probably <laughs> there is probably a setting in your TV for dynamic <laughs> audio. Um, sometimes it's called. Uh, sometimes TVs have settings for things like you reduce the dynamic range, so you make everything the same volume, and then it may have a dyna- dynamic thing where it's got a microphone, and so when it's noisy, it raises the volume. You can generally turn all that stuff off, but it's probably a setting. Hopefully, it's a setting somewhere in your TV that can. Do I that. I would love to do if if listeners have annoyances with the technology that's affecting their viewing oh, on their TVs, please send yeah. them in so I can commiserate with you. And I, I will say. Um, Regarding Chris Yu and talking about this, it depends on your bandwidth. If you've got a fast internet connection and you're seeing issues like this, one thing that I could suggest is get a streaming device. Or t- If your TV is 4K or 4K HDR, be sure to get a streaming device that does 4K and 4K HDR. I would say not all services offer 4K. In fact, a lot of them don't, but that more of them will. And there's a really good technical argument that 4K streaming is pointless. Like, I still buy occasionally um, uh, 4K Blu-rays because the bandwidth, the bit rate of those things is so far beyond anything that you could possibly stream. And so, mm-hmm. the, like, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, I have the 4K Blu-ray of that. It is gorgeous. It's always going to look better than it does on a streaming service. That said... The advantage of 4K streaming, I think, isn't that it's 4K resolution. I think the advantage is it's going to try to fill your pipe full of data at a higher bit rate than maybe a regular HD stream. And HDR does make a difference. HDR yes. does improve the colors and the grading and the brights and the darks, and it's all going to be better. So there is an advantage to that, even if you are skeptical of whether 4k is a real thing or not. Um, because I think that the 4k streams are just fundamentally better compressed and have more, um, use more bandwidth. And that's in the end, that's the true difference in terms of picture quality on streaming is how much data is flowing across the internet into your box. (laughs) Unfortunately, (laughs) it does come down to that in the end. But um, but I have a 4K box and a 4K TV, HDR TV, and I feel like I'm doing about as good. Like with Netflix, I feel like I'm getting about as good a picture as I could get without buying it on disc. Unfortunately, Netflix is way ahead of most people there. Um, so there's more work to be done. But uh, but it does the Netflix 4K HDR picture is really good. All right. Well, if you have a question for us, you can send it to us an email. Uh, it's uh, downstream at relay.fm. It's that simple. And I check that uh, before every episode. Or you can just tweet at us at DownstreamPod. Uh, love to your mothers. We love getting your letters. You can find Julia at LoudmouthJulia on Twitter. And, of course, ParrotAnalytics.com. You can find me at JSnell on Twitter and SixColors.com. And, of course, every episode of this show is available in your podcast app of choice, every directory, everywhere, or at Relay.fm slash Downstream. Uh, thank you, Julia. It's great to be back. Uh, and so good to, to be back. I've I have missed you. <laughs> and we'll be back in two weeks. Now we we're not going to take a month break again. It's going to be two weeks. We'll be back. Bye, everybody. Bye.